Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io. The support for cypherpunk philosophy is still very strong. You know, we were able to raise over 52 million in a matter of days, you know, simply through the messaging that a new era of cypherpunk organization is upon us. Julian Assange is one of the most important and polarizing journalists of modern times. If journalism is about speaking truth to power, his organization WikiLeaks has done some of the most important work over the last decade, publishing leaked materials revealing systemic abuses of trust and breaches of law that have been hidden behind claims of national security. His action towards revealing uncomfortable and sometimes intolerable truths have cost him dearly. In June, he will have been incarcerated for a full decade, first under the protection of an asylum claim at the Ecuadorian embassy and since 2019 as a prisoner in one of the harshest jails in the UK. Recently, Mr. Assange was ordered to be extradited from the UK to the US where he'll face charges that seek to make an example of him and effectively criminalize the most important sort of journalism, that which seeks to uncover corruption and wrongdoing within the most powerful institutions in our world today. So this is an important topic. WikiLeaks' history with cryptocurrency goes all the way back to before this show began. A decade ago, conventional payment processors took away the media organization's ability to accept donations, and Bitcoin quickly filled the gap. Today, the similar effort is underway, pioneered by a community who still believes in the importance of journalism and who sees the important role in that battle which Mr. Assange's fate will play. And on today's show, we're going to talk about it. But first, introductions. My name is Adam B. Levine, and this is Speaking of Bitcoin. On today's show, we're also joined by the other host of the show, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Jonathan Mohan. Hey, hey. Andreas is out this week. We're also joined by special pseudonymous guests, Stellar and Rose, two of the minds behind the Assange Dow. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks so much. Happy to be on. I think I gave a pretty good summary of kind of the story so far. And I think that for a lot of our audience, they are not familiar with the effort that's going on around the Dow. And I think that to the extent that people do focus on the Dow, we've seen sort of really polarized responses that seem to be based less around the idea of a Dow and more around the idea of kind of what you think of Assange, whether this is a good idea. So obviously you folks are in favor of this. So why don't you tell us that side of the story and then we can kind of start the conversation from there. How did the Assange Dow sort of come into existence? Where did the idea come from? And then kind of what has happened from there? Yeah, so basically the mission of the Assange Dow is to inspire a solidarity network so we can create a decentralized organization that will fight for the freedom of Julian Assange. 
partially to help with the legal fees and also just general public campaigning to increase awareness. It's also the focus of the doubt potentially open up like new kinds of activism toward Assange freedom that like we haven't even just thought about or discovered the possibilities of yet. Indeed. And the DAO started to come together. It was on December 10th of 2021. And that was when the U.S. government won its appeal of a British court ruling that had barred Assange's extradition to the U.S. So it started to open up, you know, him being extradited to the United States. So on Twitter, you know, people were starting to say it's time to create an Assange down now, like Harry Halpin or Crypto McKenna, one of the, I guess, contributors of the Assange DAO. And then a telegram group was formed and people started mobilizing there. And uh, Julian Assange's brother, Gabriel Shipton, also joined the telegram group and the DAO was starting to form in ways. It wasn't a DAO yet since there was nothing, a smart contract or a token that governed it yet. But, you know, the idea was starting to form. Gabriel's interaction with the space like didn't begin with the DAO. He's actually been attending crypto conferences for many years trying to gather donations for Assange legal fees. So I know he was with Harry Halpin at Bitcoin Miami last year trying to raise money for Assange. But until we saw what happened with the free Rostow, it was then when we realized like this could be useful for Assange as a way to galvanize the support network and also raise capital. And to date, how much funds have been raised in the Assange DAO? The Assange DAO raised using a platform called Juicebox, and Juicebox took a 5% fee right now. So there was, I didn't have the numbers memorized, but it was over 50 million essentially. Wow. Yeah. About all the ETH raised, it was like 16,500 or so, and it was used to purchase an NFT. So what was the NFT that was purchased and what's the significance of it? The NFT was created by Pac in collaboration with Julian Assange, and it's a dynamic NFT, which is basically a countdown a timer of the number of days that Assange has been in prison. I'm wondering, like, how does the funds actually get to Assange and help him? And how does he actually use it to hopefully get free? Yep. So that's a really good question. We have a forum, which like, you know, everyone can look at. It's forum.assangedow, where we've been trying to like, you know, give voice to the diversity of different opinions within the Assange Dow. But yes, yeah, so like basically we bid all of the assets on the PAC NFT. So now the Assange Dow holds the PAC NFT and also some juice box tokens. But yeah, the decision to like bet the entire treasury wasn't a unanimous one and there's like some disagreement on like what the kind of vision of the DAO was where some of us felt the DAO was useful as a coordination mechanism for cypherpunks to kind of combine forces you know united in this single vision of freeing Assange and yet we transferred the ownership of the funds that we raised to a foundation so the foundation is a German nonprofit called the Wauhallen Foundation. It's got a really good track record of like supporting free software. And it's, you know, behind the, what you call it, the Chaos Computer Club. It's got like a longstanding reputation, but you know, it's a 
non-transparent, centrally managed foundation. And some people in the community felt that the funds would be better managed by the community itself rather than the foundation. But the big advantage of having all of the ETH now in this foundation is that it could go to legal fees. This is basically what Assange needs the most right now. So if the money is left in the DAO, it's very hard for it to interact with the kind of regulated financial world. What was the status of Assange's debts for legal fees or his finances basically before the DAO came about? So Assange was using like pro bono lawyers. So that's like lawyers which are provided by the state, basically. It's not a person with money to pay for fancy lawyers. And, you know, this is also a big issue because as he's like a victim or an enemy of the state, you know, you can't trust that the lawyers that he's given by the state will be the best, will have his defense at heart, you know. That's why it's better to have independent lawyers. So the really cool news is that there's now 52 million or something in the custody of the Wahalan Foundation that is like 100% dedicated to getting him the best possible legal defense. So that's a lot of money and I think it will make a substantial difference. So he needs to find a lawyer who takes Ethereum. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe not, right? Can the foundation sell it for a different currency or... Yeah, they should be able to, I assume. I mean, it's a German foundation and you can have a crypto exchange in Germany. And I assume that you know, corporations can have crypto accounts and just have assets normally. So my assumption is yes, but I hope that they hold most of it in ETH or, you know, trade it to stable coins or Bitcoin or whatever and just convert it into fiat as needed. (laughs) Yeah. And is there a way, like, does the community have a say in what they do with it or is the foundation in control of that now? The foundation is fully in control of it at the moment. But right now, members of the community are working on creating some certain requests for the foundation to perhaps provide some more transparency to the DAO, just, you know, treating the DAO as a foundation of sorts that has given, you know, someone a grant and you want some reporting on that. So I think that it would be nice to establish that relationship with the foundation. Okay, so you don't even know what the foundation, if anything, has done with the funds exchanging it or holding it? We believe the funds went to PAC and PAC was going to donate 100% of them to the foundation. Have not checked the smart contracts yet to see if those funds have been moved yet. I'm sorry, what exactly is PAC? PAC, it's a digital artist believe they're referred to as a they. That was the artist that was essentially the creator, designer of the NFT. Then they designed it in collaboration with Assange. Can the DAO still raise money or is the fundraising closed at this point? The juice box kind of cycle or like the fundraising we did via this platform called juice box is over. But Once the governance process of the DAO opens, there can potentially be a proposal where a member of the DAO says, let's raise more funds, let's mint more justice tokens, let's open another funding cycle. And if that is approved, then the multi-sig, which is basically 
it's a three of five multi-sig wallet that has control over this juice box funding contract. They will be required to execute according to the community's will, assuming that this is how our governance works. But part of what needs to be worked out first before this even happens is like making sure that the governance model of the Assange DAO is something that the community like votes in. So the governance model hasn't been fully ratified yet. So that's the first priority with the Assange DAO before even considering any additional funding cycles. Okay, so I'm kind of trying to understand, like, what is it that makes it a DAO right now? Is the DAO kind of like the smart contracts on Juicebox that raise these funds and issue justice tokens and the NFT? Like, are those connected by some kind of code or what kinds of code or smart contracts are involved? I guess I'm just wondering. When people give ETH to the multisig through this third party called Juicebox that we use, then they get a certain amount of justice token for their donation. And that token potentially enables them to participate in this token-weighted governance process. But right now, because the token was only shipped after the auction was finished, we don't have governance enabled. And also, like for example, the free Rostow, they won the NFT and then they fractionalized it. So everyone has a part of that. The DAO could through the governance process, like choose to fractionalize the pack NFT. But right now it just has the token and potentially could have part of the NFT as well. I have to tell you, this is kind of fascinating to me because I've been listening rather than talking for once. And one of the things that I think I've been hearing is that you guys effectively, and I say you guys, to basically just kind of say the DAO, right? All of the people who participated in this process raised $50 million with, it sounds like very little of a plan. (laughs) And you're kind of trying to figure it out as it goes. But I mean, like, is that accurate? Was this just like a completely organic groundswell that happened to, you know, attract attention to raise again, $50 million. So there are a couple of initiatives here also that I think it's worth disentangling. So there's the censored part of the project and the censored part of the project. That is an NFT that anybody could create through the Assange DAO website that then effectively allows you to put in a message and then that message gets turned into a censored NFT where the NFT says the words that you put in and then it's censored. And the more you paid for it, the higher the ranking that you are in this list that's here. So I believe PAC paid 100 ETH for their message. And so that's the number one or the number two kind of in the list. So there's about 600 and something, I think 700 ETH that was raised there, which is a couple million dollars, which is a lot of money. And then there's on the other side of it, there's the countdown NFT. And that one was auctioned. And the auction for that one, looking at it, that had a winning bid of 16,593 ETH. And the next bid below that was from Jesse Powell of Kraken, of course. And he had bid 4,242. So those are the two types of NFTs you're talking about, correct? One is the countdown one that was purchased by one person. And then there's the censored one that is effectively the membership DAO. Is that correct? The whole project was called Censored and the Clock NFT, aka the Countdown one or Count Up one, was the one that was yeah purchased by the Assange DAO, which was primarily bidding against, yes, Jesse. Okay. So the Assange DAO is actually who placed this 16,593 yes. ETH bet. Okay. Okay. So the Assange DAO is currently holding this one. 
And so it gathered that 16,000 ETH from people who purchased the censored NFT, correct? No, 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 no. That's the Assange DAO. The Assange DAO raised contributions on Juicebox and the DAO used all the funds that was raised on Juicebox to basically bid on the clock NFT. So that 16,000 that you see, it's like from over 10,000 contributors to the Assange DAO. Okay, so there's three parts to this project then. There's the censored NFTs, there's the clock NFT, and both of those are projects that were collaborations between Assange and PAC. And then there's the Juicebox DAO fundraiser. Now, I'm not familiar with the Juicebox platform. Is it basically like Kickstarter, but for DAOs? Mm, I don't know if it's like, Kickstarter because Kickstarter, it's like usually like, oh, fundraise this and you're going to get this prize or that prize. But it is a crowdfunding platform where you put in money and you can configure people getting a token back. Basically, all that Juicebox is, is like a web interface for smart contracts where you like in a very easy way can configure a token sale. Understood. Okay. So you can set parameters like, oh, how many days the cycle is going to run? And yeah, you can figure it through the web app. They take 5%. Okay, that makes sense to me. Pretty standard crowdfunding stuff on that side, just turning it into a DAO and whether reward is a token that is a governance token of the DAO rather than, you know, like a hat that you're going to wear or something like that. Okay, if you can, this feels complex. <laughs> this feels like there's a lot of moving parts here. What's the thinking that kind of led to that type of an approach where you raise money on the one side and then you use the money to purchase an NFT on the other side and then all of the revenue from that purchase is going to be donated by the artist to the project? Was that like an intentional decision or was this just the fastest way to make it happen? Basically, Gabriel had been talking with myself and some other people about an NFT, like an Assange NFT for some time. and then. When the free Rasta happened, we were like, hey, so you know you're doing this NFT. Why don't we do a DAO thing like what the free Rasta did? And then like at the same time as us saying this, there were like dozens of other people saying this, you know, and we formed together as a community. And we outlined over the course of a month or two, we outlined a kind of basic governance proposal, which says like, okay, how does this community come to decisions in a kind of transparent and collective and fair way. And so we made like a governance flow and Stella here was very instrumental in putting that together. We put that on the website, we configured the smart contract stuff, and we basically announced ourselves and bid for the NFT. Feels to me like this is, at this point, pretty narrowly focused on supporting Julian Assange and his fight against extradition to the United States. You know, it sounds like you've, again, allocated pretty much all of the resources or the vast majority of the resources that have come in towards that goal with the idea that, hey, maybe we raise more money in the future, but this is the important thing and sort of the reason for this thing to exist. Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, basically, we had this governance process, which we had outlined on the website prior to participating in the auction. And the governance process says that basically you create like a proposal and it gets filtered through many stages. We were quite conscious when we designed the governance process that there was a risk that the governance process could be co-opted by like actors looking to destabilize the DAO or block the funding route to Assange. 
So we put in a kind of security mechanism, which was that the Assange family would have the final say on what proposals got accepted by the DAO. Not approved, but like legitimate for the DAO to vote on. So basically, it's like a filtering mechanism before there can be a vote. Given that it's the Assange DAO, that makes sense to have that as sort of a gate, right? And then so you're saying, okay, the Assange family is going to decide what is possible for the DAO to vote on. And then the people who actually put in the funding by nature of having their justice tokens, they're the ones who have the opportunity to then actually vote on whether something happens or not. Exactly. Yeah, because, you know, the DAO is using Assange's name and likeness. So it's very important in ways. But right now, some people are saying it might be too centralized. And I think that needs to be evaluated a bit because this model is also very similar to the free Ross DAO model, which was what we were looking at as an example of like a similar DAO that has someone in prison that also has family members involved, etc. So that makes sense to me. Okay, so again, assume for a second that this works, you know, and we get Julian Assange, basically the best sort of legal representation that money can buy, which is what it sounds like you could pretty much get with the amount of money that you've raised for that purpose. Like, what's a happy path here for you? Like, what's the outcome that the DAO is really sort of trying to bring about? Julian Assange being free. <laughs> I think many of us got into this for different reasons. And that's something which is very kind of typical to DAOs because in Ethereum, a DAO is often a multi-sig. You know, it's just a kind of collective of people who make decisions as a kind of squad. You know, now we have this token feedback. The community is getting much larger and they have a voice now through the token to influence. But because we are this like decentralized forum, we have a lot of different views on how to conduct the DAO and what the future of the DAO should be and whether the decisions taken by the DAO were the best ones. But, you know, from my perspective and from many of our perspectives, this DAO was a way to galvanize an incredible community of cypherpunks who are united in their support for Assange. And that's incredibly powerful because crypto has become increasingly kind of, I would say, de-radicalized over time and, you know, increasingly more kind of financialized and many of its more cypherpunk agorist elements are kind of suppressed. So this is a really interesting phenomena because it means that actually we've discovered the support for cypherpunk philosophy is still very strong. You know, we were able to raise over 52 million in a matter of days, you know, simply through the messaging that a new era of cypherpunk organization is upon us. So I think that's incredibly powerful. And I think that that concept has a future that's even greater than, you know, the Assange DAO. And I think for the Assange DAO to continue, it needs to kind of change its tooling, actually. I think it needs to move off of Ethereum. I'm biased because I'm a programmer. I work on DarkFi, which is an anonymous smart contracts platform. But I believe that the DAO needs to migrate to DarkFi in order to operate to its full potential. I love the fact that this is becoming a thing that people can raise funds for goals that the governments of the world coordinate because they can't violate the law, but they use social consensus to debank. And if people haven't been following the story of WikiLeaks, it was the same as any Bitcoin entrepreneur in terms of the impossibility of getting a bank account, the impossibility of processing payments. And it was one of these 
death of a thousand cuts where they couldn't affect the law. They couldn't affect them in a court where you could actually fight it. But they use this like the oligopoly of banking to silence them. And, you know, the fact that this DAO is coming about as a means for him to form capital, like, I mean, we're all very cognizant of if this was a GoFundMe, what would have happened to the GoFundMe, right? <laughs> like, I think what happened to WikiLeaks in the beginning was one of the things that woke people up to that there was actually financial-based censorship happening. It definitely did for me. That was the first time I really heard about it. Yeah. And then you're talking about, you know, how this isn't just a thing about Julian Assange, but from the notion of the cypherpunk revolution, how this could impact the ability to fight this fight and help people and grow. And it just made me think, good God, I wish we had some sort of foundation that, you know, kept pushing the electronic frontier and just focused on helping people in the cypherpunk movement. <laughs> if only such an organization exists and did its job, maybe DAOs like this wouldn't be necessary. Nexo is a trusted and easy-to-use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 18% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. I think it is fascinating, again, the use of a DAO in this type of an application, right? Because effectively what you're saying is that you use a DAO because it worked for free Ross and it worked, frankly, more for you by about four times. So, I mean, you know, I know that you're on here as pseudonymous, you know, participants. There's kind of two parts to this. One part is decentralization is a tool of last resort. As Jonathan said, you know, like if this had been on a traditional funding platform, then we wouldn't be having this conversation because you wouldn't have successfully raised any money because you wouldn't have been allowed to. And so on the one hand, I hear that the structure of a DAO allowed you to then bypass all of the roadblocks that would have been thrown up in front of you to do something like this and allow you to, again, to collect funds from people who think that this is important, of whom there are at least, it seems like about 30,000 people and $50 million worth of people who think that this is important, which I think is a really incredible achievement. On the other hand, I hear all of the confusion and complexity that's inherent to this process of using this type of decentralized system. So it's not like this was the preferred path forward. It sounds like Julian Assange's brother was actively going around looking for this type of support. But this vehicle allowed it to sort of coalesce around these things for whatever reason, but it worked. Is that an accurate assessment of kind of what happened here? And how do you feel about the way that this has gone? I imagine it's been a wild ride. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely complex in ways, but also I would say simple too. Yeah, like right now, you know, like we said, we followed the free Ross Dow pattern. Definitely people are interested in art and owning, you know, something unique. And then also, you know, being a part of a community. So yeah, crypto and DAOs allows this really accelerated way of organizing. And I think that there's a lot of potential around it. There's a lot that we haven't even discovered yet. I think it can even become a more complex organism than the one that exists today. 
But I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing because it's also like purchasing an NFT together that is going to help free Assange. It's sort of like, you know, the first activity that you're doing together as a community, like the first thing you come together to do. Because yeah, before in the past, just traditional donations didn't work. And right now, this is something that does work. So I mean, it's definitely a bit deeper than that. But it's also like what you can also play with in the regulatory environment. You know, like what is a mechanism that is less legally risky when it comes to pooling funds? So the regulatory aspect is definitely something important. Something kind of central to, I think, how people conceptualize around DAOs is like a DAO is a kind of decentralized central bank where have a treasury and the ability to issue credit and the participants who are usually token holders have the ability through their vote to direct the flow of funds held by the treasury. So, you know, one of my kind of personal regrets when it comes to the Assange DAO was that I wish we could have made the token liquid before the auction because then the token holders would have had a voice on what the bidding strategy was. And the ideal is that the token holders, you know, like I said, they control the treasury, but now they no longer control the ETH because it was transferred to the Wow Holland Foundation. Although they still control a very valuable NFT and the overall market cap is larger than the sum of the investments. So there is some like additional value that's been created here. And I hope that, you know, now that we're in the process of enabling the governance through the token, the DAO will take its own path and, you know, through the forum and the community, you know, start to create new avenues for freeing Assange and potentially, you know, other cypherpunk DAO offshoots. I think that would be really positive. I think a lot of people don't know the history of WikiLeaks with Bitcoin probably because it occurred so early in the formative years of Bitcoin that, you know, not many people were around for it. But if you happened to listen on Audible to the book of Satoshi read by Stephanie Murphy, <laughs> you could actually hear that one of the very few things Satoshi commented on that were abstractions outside of the protocol was WikiLeaks and what was going on with WikiLeaks and how Bitcoin could serve in that role. And it's one of the rare instances where people say, you know, Bitcoin's anti-fragile, Bitcoin is beyond the ability to squash. Well, at the very early days, it was a very real question, have we achieved critical mass to be beyond what could be killed? And WikiLeaks started taking Bitcoin. And then I think Julian even said, actually, let's not take Bitcoin right now because bringing the Eye of Sauron down onto Bitcoin at this formative phase would actually kill it. And Stephanie, if you could correct me if I'm wrong, it was actually both Satoshi, who said, actually, I think this is a little too dangerous for us right now, and Julian himself, who actually commented, hey, guys, like, you can't handle the heat that we're under right now. I understand what you're going to grow up to be one day, but you're not that right now. But I love the fact that you're trying to help. And that was when Bitcoin was like, very under a dollar, right? Like it was around a dollar. 
And so it's just sort of beautifully symmetrical that the people that were cypherpunks who got involved with the types of things WikiLeaks was doing and then got into Bitcoin and then were requested at the behest of Julian to not give him Bitcoin are now able to bring that cycle full circle and a system in this way. I'm really happy you brought that up because it's actually one of my favorite quotes from Satoshi. He says, WikiLeaks has kicked the hornet's nest and the swarm is heading towards us, which was beautiful. And it was one of the last posts he made on the Bitcoin forum. <laughs> so there's speculation as to whether he left because of the heat from WikiLeaks. But I think it's really beautiful. And a friend of mine, Paul Dylan Ellis, Ellis who's a kind of Bitcoin philosopher, he called us the hornet's nest like coming into being. So I thought that was really nice. I'd spoken to a number of Bitcoiners about the Assange DAO and questions they had around it. And one of the consistent feedbacks I got from people who have been in Bitcoin for a long time is this sort of belief that, you know, if you knew about Bitcoin at a certain time, that must mean that you have a certain amount of wealth. And the thought was, like, wait, why are we raising money for Julian? Isn't he just like the Uber OG that is sitting on a fat stack of, you know, like a bajillion Bitcoin? So I guess, could you speak to sort of what type of impact this type of capital event is going to be to him? And sort of if there's a reason to continue contributing and if this was sort of, you know, giving a billionaire 50 million or if this really was, you know, like a time of need? Yeah, so basically, you know, WikiLeaks used Bitcoin as operating capital because of its uncensorable properties. They weren't necessarily hodlers of Bitcoin, but one of the first use cases of an organization using it to operate. And I think that like the WikiLeaks Bitcoin treasury, it's also like, you know, for a foundation or a nonprofit and that can't even all be used for like Julian's case as an individual, I don't believe. But, you know, they still need to operate as an organization. So I think it's important to have, you know, diverse funding sources. I was just going to add quickly that he's not a rich man. You know, as I said, he's been on pro bono legal defense and his brother has been asking for many years the crypto community for their support and not receiving it nearly to the immense degree of support that we just received. Why do you think that is? I mean, obviously you can't speak to everyone who put money into the DAO and ask why they did it. But it seems to me like this is something that people would do because they believe in the idea, not because they're expecting to make money. But yet there has been additional value that's been created. And so I guess why was this so successful when it was difficult for Julian to raise funds before and for his family, even though they were trying? Has to be a big part of it to do with the incentive structure. So there's two kind of financial instruments at work here. There's the token, which is issued relative to the contribution size. And there's the NFT, which is like the final object of the bidding. So I think that these incentives definitely accelerate and compound the overall kind of financial interest that people have in the project, especially like we spoke a lot about the free Ross DAO, but there's also the Constitution DAO, which raised just under what we raised, like some 40 odd million. And they had a token which was like very liquid and very traded called People. It became a kind of a meme coin. So I think that had something to do with it. But I'm also very kind of bullish on 
the overall narrative that you know we've entered a period of unstoppable decentralized cypherpunk organization and that cypherpunks are gathering together you know to take on these causes such as like constitution day is one of the first but then we have the free ross and free assange two very important historical ideological figures within the crypto space and you know i, I don't think that's kind of an accident that it's these symbolic individuals that really managed to galvanize that level of support and you know when it comes to assange i mean ross is also like an indispensable and important thinker within the bitcoin history but assange as well you know he was incredibly formative in the um cypherpunk movement you know he helped formalize and articulate like what the cypherpunk philosophy was and not only that but he also like dedicated his life and ultimately his freedom to his ideas in you know like some of the most impactful and important ways like that I don't I think we've seen you know within our lifetime and in the Assange DAO you know all of our supporters we're all uh, very much aligned with the cypherpunk philosophy and the vision put forward by Assange you know we're also a lot of us are programmers so we're big supporters of Assange's early work so you know Assange he's mostly spoken about now as a journalist and you know also as a cypherpunk because many people are familiar with his essays but less so spoken about as a software developer because he has mostly been doing writing in WikiLeaks for you know the past I guess I don't know 20 years or something but his older work is amazing and is highly ideological and he has this amazing philosophy of software which comes from Unix he wrote some amazing tools so i'm just really excited to tell you guys this because we haven't told anyone this publicly but the assange dao bids had some secret messages encoded in them so basically in the dust of the bids we put encoding of words related to free software history and assange so it's text like strings encoded as ascii and the first one it says mendax that's that username of Julian Assange when he's a young hacker you know and he's like 16 years old it's a kind of a contentious name because it's kind of an open secret that he was mendax but i don't know how much people want to emphasize that you know for purposes of the defense because he was a hacker and involved in a lot of interesting stuff surfra was the second bid this is a reference to one of the projects he built it stands for Shell users revolutionary front against the web. <laughs> <laughs> so he was like very anti-web. He was very pro Unix and command line. You know, the shell users revolutionary front against the web is like it's a command line tool that you can use to browse the web basically, but without any of the nasty web infrastructure. That was Surfra reference, and he wrote the README to that as well as much of the code. It's really worth checking out. Then finally, the third bid was rubber hose. Our hose was the code. Verbohose encryption, another thing Assange worked on, you know, frequently forgotten. But, you know, this was a kind of deniable encryption technology that was the super influential. And finally, the last bid, we encoded WikiLeaks as his kind of best and biggest contribution to hacktivism. I just wanted to tell you guys that we haven't told anyone, but that's what we were speaking about the value. And I think this is what the value that this collection of cypherpunks brings, you know, 
it wasn't just about the token. It wasn't just about the NFT. It's also about the philosophy of Julian Assange and the importance of the role he had in the crypto ecosystem. You mentioned Julian's philosophy. It's so funny how like things become politicized later or could become political later. And then people try to retroactively apply that political lens, you know, to a period before it existed. So I remember when Julian Assange was just a, like a software journalist guy and there wasn't really a political bent to it. It wasn't like, you know, hey, there's this or that. It was political in that it wanted to create change, but it wasn't like a tool of the right or a tool of the left. It was just, hey, I'm talking about things happening in Africa. And he didn't touch anything in America, so it wasn't really considered a partisan thing yet. And I remember reading his, like the thesis papers he put out about WikiLeaks. And there are two concepts that he talked about that, you know, I think about a lot, especially because he was able to describe them at a system level and at an incentive level. And as someone who's been in Bitcoin for a while, you basically think of everything as like a matchmaking engine with incentives and different parties involved in it. And I remember him saying that his thesis before he formed WikiLeaks, that WikiLeaks was the proof of was that societies believe that their countries do what they think it does. And to the extent that you have power is the extent to which you're able to deviate from that perception. However, you don't deviate in a way that you're held accountable to because you want that to be non-transparent. And so he said that when evil does evil, they do it as quietly as possible. And so what you need to do is reduce the cost and the friction of bringing a light to things that are not what the people think they're supposed to be doing. And that the greater the delta between what those in power do versus those they represent are actually doing is the impact that that would have. And what he said was he wanted to create a system that incentivized the ability to disclose that. Because as long as that existed, what you're going to have is a collapse of the number of people or the sophistication that you could have in your attempt for evil. Because the greater the delta between what people think you're doing and what you're actually doing and the number of people involved in your conspiracy is the likelihood that it gets leaked to WikiLeaks, right? And so he said that to the extent that you're totalitarian and you're doing evil things that the public don't think you're doing, you'll be restricted in the number of people you could collude with because you'll eventually reach an end where one of those people would leak to WikiLeaks. And so his thought was that governments that are engaging in things that are divergent from the will of the people would slow down and become less efficient because they don't have competent people working for them because they need to keep their conspiracy small enough that they don't fear that one person would leak it to WikiLeaks. So I read this thesis and I'm like, oh, you know, that kind of makes sense. I get where WikiLeaks is coming on that. And then when Hillary Clinton's server issue came out and you realize like the guy that she hired to do it was this idiot who was posting on Reddit like the week after she asked him to do it. Like, hey, how do you delete something cryptographically, right? Like, like it's this perfect example of the WikiLeaks thesis that once you make easy the ability to disclose the divergence between what those in power claim they're doing when they claim they're representing their people and what they do is this just intense incentive to keep that conspiracy small. And a small conspiracy is always incompetent because they can't hire competent people because the parameter that they're maximizing for is never needing to be held accountable to their people. And so like there was this beautiful era of WikiLeaks that maybe one day will return and you know, God knows we know we need it, where those that were engaging in horrible things that were different than what they claimed they were doing 
were just completely incompetent because they feared hiring competent people and somebody giving it to WikiLeaks. And so maybe, you know, at some point when Assange gets his freedom and this treasury is still around, it could go towards, you know, re-engaging in that thesis because, you know, it's sorely needed. And that incentive scheme and that reason and that thesis has never been more valid and never been more needed. I think the thing that I'm most interested in is kind of to see what happens with it next, right? You've accomplished sort of your initial goals. And now there's a question of, on the one hand, how much does this actually help, right? Do we actually see Assange extricated from the situation that he has found himself in for the last 10 years and do sort of the ideals of true journalism, are they protected by this? Because that could be, I think, a really positive outcome. And then from there, you know, we'll see where it goes. But (laughs) man, decentralization, right? It's like, it's the best thing if you have no other options because it makes it possible, but it's not clean. Yeah, I mean, DAOs are definitely beasts. They can also be cluster and yeah, it's crazy. It's like a lot of people with different opinions and you have to figure out how to reach consensus in different ways. So it's definitely going to be a challenge. But I think definitely Assange Dow has already helped Julian's case tremendously by delivering, you know, the foundation over 50 million. And we hope that that makes a dent. It seems like it definitely can't hurt. Yeah. <laughs> For myself and some others, I think this day was a really interesting educative experience on the kind of complexity of decentralized governance, but also the kind of reality of DAO tooling as it exists today. So there's a few like important ways in which, you know, the DAO being built on Ethereum in a fully plain text transparent context was kind of prohibitive and damaging for the DAO. So like it messed up a couple different things. Basically it caused some game theoretical problems, which were unexpected related to the dynamics of the auction. But it also meant, and it also means like in the future that the actions of the DAO are highly restricted because basically all of its operations are happening in the open. And there are some things that strategically you do not want to share. So when it comes to the auction, the max bid size was known in advance, which meant that the auction scenario is kind of strange because why would you bid against someone with that big a treasury? I mean, the final bid is known, so the auction is over as soon as it has begun, you know? So we kind of made a few bids because, you know, we wanted a bit of tension and drama and also because we wanted to get those codes out, but could have made the max bid at the right beginning of the auction. It wouldn't have made a difference because the max bid size was known. So there's that issue, but then there's also the fact that like, okay, now we've shipped the money to the Wow Holland Foundation, but if we would have preserved capital, the usage of that capital will be restricted because the operations of the DAO would be completely transparent to the public and any actors that wish to persecute the DAO, its community, you know, its core members, everything about it. So my view is that this DAO and like the dream of this DAO, it's like true potential, cannot be realized on Ethereum. It has to be built in a purposefully anonymous environment. 
So like right now with DarkFi, you know, we've just built a kind of prototype of our overall network. It's still centralized. We're working on the blockchain aspect now, but the core cryptography is working and the network is working. So, you know, it's basically just the blockchain component, which is unfinished. Actually, the past couple of days, we had to put this work aside because things kicked off with the Assange DAO. But in the past week, we made a prototype for an anonymous DAO. And we're about to build this into a fully functional demo. And the really nice thing about, you know, building and maintaining a DAO in an anonymous environment is that while it is anonymous by default, it doesn't have to be anonymous in every aspect. So you could have a DAO that, for example, if you wanted to, you could reveal the size of the treasury or you could reveal the number of votes that a proposal had. But you don't have to. It's anonymous by default. So you have to consciously, deliberately choose to engineer it in such a way that you reveal information in a completely trustless way. So, you know, we're using zero knowledge. It's really amazing because you can use the proof system not just to enforce anonymity, but also to ensure that everything happened correctly with no like funny business in the code. So yeah, my hope is that the future of Assange DAO is on DarkFi, where it can operate properly, you know, without its members, the participants living in fear of persecution. Now, we have not talked about DarkFi yet, but it's worth mentioning that this conversation came about because of a conversation that I had with Amir Taki, who's a longtime friend of the show. And when you talk about DarkFi, Amir is not like the primary person behind it, but as usual, he's sort of out there leading the pack with the kind of ideology and sort of the like thinking and the kind of pitch behind it. Is that an okay characterization there? Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, Amir is kind of like a ideological spokesperson, but you know, dark fight is like a community. We see it as a movement because there is a network that we built, which is still at the prototype kind of stage where at the time of speaking, you can send anonymous payments around. You can basically wrap tokens from several blockchains through a centralized bridge and then send them around anonymously. That's basically using two zero-knowledge smart contracts, mint and burn. So it's similar to the sapling payment scheme on Zcash. There's a mint and a burn with every transaction. That's what breaks the link between transactions. So that's what we have now, but we're quickly iterating on more smart contracts so we can also have, for example, anonymous DAOs, anonymous voting, you know, anonymous yield farming, more complex things, potentially like other financial primitives. So yeah, we're in the middle of building all of that out. And I think the DAO use case is at the moment the most obvious, but there are many potential use cases for DarkFi. Just to mention briefly that it's very much in the same ideology of software as Assange had. So, you know, we're very anti-web. We don't even like the concept of Web3. Like we want to break away from web, build like desktop apps which don't use, you know, just local to your machine. There's no telemetry. And I think that's a much better context for dealing with money. And I don't know why this whole web paradigm uses like browser wallets and stuff like that. It's like real mess. And the whole Ethereum thing like Juicebox and like a lot of the software we're interacting with is very web-based. And I just think it's the wrong direction for cryptocurrency. That reminds me of something Julian talked about once. It was a phenomenal conversation. I can't recall what the link was, but I'll try to remember it. He was talking about privacy and he was defining privacy in economic terms where he said, look, we can never know what a politician does 
versus what the law is, right? And if we have secret courts with secret laws, with secret interpretations, with secret police, how do you know they're even following the law they're supposed to? So he said, what if you think of privacy in economic terms? And he said, in 1970, it cost the state three to $4,000 per day to totally surveil you. And it was because they needed an FBI agent in a van that followed you everywhere you went and was tapping a wire and actively listening to it in order to listen to you. And he was talking about this since like 2015. So the numbers have changed. He said that the cost of permanently storing every piece of data that you create on the internet and recording from your phone passively occurring was something like $2 per day per person in America. And so he was saying, are you telling me that for $600 million, the U.S. government wouldn't create a perfect, fully like spying on every single human that they couldn't, right? He was saying in another 10 years, it won't be $2 per day. It'll be 10 cents per day. And then it'll be a penny per day. There's nothing you can do to a law that will change the economic reality that when it costs a penny a day to totally surveil every person in America, that there's a government agency that's clandestine that's not going to do that. And so he was talking about the most impactful thing we could do is not try to engage in a civics engagement of trying to change the delta between what illegal actors do versus what the law is supposed to be. But he said, what if we use technology as an enabling tool to not you know, live in an anarchistic state, but to say, wow, if we could use messaging communication tools that created a three order of magnitude increase in the cost to surveil you, it's not that you're saying the government should in no conditions ever be able to look at what you're doing. It's saying that the cost of the right to engage in surveillance on you should go back to what it was in the 70s. And I think you're totally right, which is like the people who talk about the internet as an enabling technology for freedom always forget to mention that on the parameter of privacy, like it has been a categoric failure. There's nothing that we have done on the internet that has given us any form of privacy that couldn't have been better achieved in the 70s when none of this existed. And so what you're doing with DarkFi is phenomenal because I personally believe that the only way I will have the Fourth Amendment right that my grandfather had when he was you know, my age is if we can change the cost of surveillance back to what it used to be in the 70s and not through a civic engagement, but through, you know, cypherpunk technology. That's amazing. I completely agree. And I worked as a journalist for some years. I was a tech writer for Coindesk and um, I traveled a lot to Ethereum conferences and I was always disturbed by the attitude to privacy that appeared to be expressed. I mean, oftentimes they weren't openly anti-privacy, but they had a very early kind of zero knowledge community in Ethereum. And when there were talks on questions like zero knowledge, you know, they had a lot of engagement. But I still found that the vast majority of programmers were choosing scalability concerns over privacy concerns and putting the question of adoption first. And they felt that privacy was something too difficult to achieve uh, that would be looked at later. And that just struck me as a completely like sheltered approach because I really felt that these people didn't understand what was at stake when it came to digital privacy and like why it's needed by people. And I felt like maybe they didn't know because some of them are, you know, Europeans. They've never felt persecution before. They've never been persecuted. They've never had to hide their financial transactions or their 
internet usage or you know anything like that so they just think surveillance is something benevolent that's never really you know harmed them i mean maybe that's unfair there are some people in ethereum who are quite ideological and you know have this kind of cypherpunk background and that's also why they got into crypto i think that's very common as well but still you know i remember going to an ethereum conference and this was just after i returned from rojava where you know in rojava the situation of privacy is like very serious and immediate. It's like if people are using phones connected to the internet, you know, that can give away their location to drones. And, you know, I mean, it's not like that all over the place. That's obviously the front lines. But basically, you know, all of the network traffic in Syria goes through enemy state. So there's a real need for anonymous communications technology. It's like life and death. But just to say quickly, I got back to the Ethereum conference after kind of recognizing the importance of privacy at the level of infrastructure. And people were talking about how cryptography can be used by bad people to do bad things. And I just felt like the conversation was completely skewed and corrupted by, you know, this very big tech attitude towards data collection. Anyway, but the good news is, is like, We've just galvanized an Assange community on ETH, you know, via ETH. So there's obviously a lot more support for these ideas than I had thought before. So the way that this episode came together, actually, is that we were going to talk to Amir about DarkFi. And then sort of this stuff with Assange happened, and he was involved with that. And so we wound up talking about this first. And I'm glad that we did, because I think it set the table nicely for the episode that will come. So thank you very much for joining us today. If anybody is interested in getting involved, what are kind of the URLs? Or if somebody is a DAO member, where are you actually coordinating on this? You know, help us to coalesce this very decentralized thing. Right now we're recommending the forum, forum.assangedao.org. The Discord is a bit noisy, <laughs> but the forum will hopefully be a more tame place to govern and make decisions. But yeah, otherwise you can go to assangedao.org and find the links there. That is, in fact, all the time we have for today. We've got way over time relative to what we wanted to do for this, but it was time well spent. So folks, that's a wrap on another episode of Speaking of Bitcoin. Today's episode featured Stellar, Rose, Stephanie Murphy, Jonathan Mohan, and myself, Adam B. Levine. Today's episode featured music from Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats with editing by Jonas. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and send me an email at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show or just leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And until next time, thank you very much for listening. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.